Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm, but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what did the angry coral say to the other? Let's not make anemones of each other. I just overheard a guy claiming that a ring-shaped coral reef is also an island. But it's not an island, atoll. Brooklyn Ellswig is an engineer and a marine biologist. Growing up, marine science took center stage with school projects focused on the ocean and marine science sleepaway camps. When it came time for higher education, Brooke chose to pursue engineering in a landlocked state. The siren song of the sea is a powerful one, though, and after graduation, Brooke found herself once more back in the marine science realm, traveling overseas. Her role? Project coordinator for the Shusha Island Coral Reefscape Project with King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, or KAUST, and NEOM in Saudi Arabia. In today's episode, Brooke shares her journey from rescuing sea turtles in drains to working on the largest coral reef project on the planet. Brooke's energy is contagious, and I'm excited to share this episode with you. Please enjoy. Brooklyn, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So you've always been an aspiring marine biologist, and then you went down the engineering track, and now you're a marine biologist, and I'm so excited to get started in your story today. And I do want to start kind of growing up, like you always knew you wanted to be a marine scientist. What inspired this from such a young age? Oh, yeah. So I grew up on the coast of South Florida. So I remember being seven years old after hurricanes, looking in the drains to sea turtles and redirecting them back to shore. It was always something that was very innate to me. I had the privilege of being able to go to a marine science sleepaway camp starting at the ripe age of 12 years old. And so I started scuba diving really early, started taking classes like shark ecology and humans in the environment for fun during my summer times. And throughout middle school and high school, I really incorporated that. I was doing projects on coral bleaching in the eighth grade. And then by the time I was in high school, I was the marine biology president and running beach cleanups. It was always a part of me. And growing up with that, I witnessed degradation firsthand. And so it was a very personal issue for me. I was very like emotionally and personally driven by it. And so that's that's how I got into it at first. Okay, I want to circle back. I grew up in South Florida. I have never found a sea turtle in a drain. Where are you finding sea turtles in the drains? Okay, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale because you know how sea turtles like will try to follow the moon. Oh, you're talking about babies. Yeah, little baby sea turtles in drains. Okay, no, that makes more sense. 
Okay, so for listeners, sea turtle season runs right in the middle of hurricane season. It's like towards the tail end of sea turtle season, usually. But hurricanes come through and they do wipe out nests. This is why sea turtles nest in such prolific numbers. They lay multiple nests every season and it's hundreds of eggs per nest for this reason. But they some of them do get washed out and then the babies are subject to hurricanes. They get blown back on shore. I just have never heard of a sea turtle actually getting blown so far on shore that they're actually in the shore. That's all. Every single morning I'd run down, I'd meet like the maintenance guy and I would be like, we're going in the drains. And so then I would put them in buckets and then I would individually take them back out to sea. Okay. Sea turtles and drains starting off interesting. Okay. And I want to talk, you went to sea camp, which is really fun. Sea camp is such a special spot. So it's on Big Pine Key in the Florida Keys. And it's really, I mean, for kids in general, it's incredible, right? You just spend all your days swimming in the water in some of the best coral reefs in the entire world. And then for an aspiring marine biologist, right, they offer classes and there's just so many cool things that you can do at sea camp. So I can definitely see how that would really foster your love for the ocean. It changed my life. Also, sea camp is the coolest place. For some reason, I feel like it just kind of got stuck in the 70s. Like, it's just this camp that is like still has a setting of being in like 1970s summertime. And the people there are just are so passionate and want to be there. You spend the day kayaking through mangroves and wading through the sand and learning how to scuba dive. Such an awesome way to get started in my early, early adolescence. Yes, absolutely. I'm also curious, you said you had a coral bleaching project in eighth grade. That seems like really young. Is this something that they offered through school or is this just like a project that you took on? So I've always been a science buff. It's never been history. And so there every single year at my middle school, they'd have this national history day project and there would be a certain theme to it. Usually you choose a history project. And I was like, you know what? I still want to do something science related. I want to do something with corals. And there's a history related to the turn of events with bleaching, like how it really got started in the 70s, 80s with industrialization, with the onset of climate change. And so there was like this chronological order I could follow and turn it into a history project. So I started that in the eighth grade, did a documentary on it. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. And then brought that project to the state. And so, yeah, so I was in the eighth grade when I first was really intrigued by this stuff. I really like how you got really creative with it. You're like, it's history, but it's natural history. I am not a history person. Like it's always been science for me. It's always been corals. That was eighth grade. And then in high school, I was the marine bio president. So I, I definitely was involved early on. But ironically, I went to college in a landlocked state. So definitely kind of pivoted at one point. Yes. And I'm super curious about this because you grew up doing all like saturated in marine biology, basically. And part of me understands why you would want to change a scenery, right? But if you knew that was going to be your career path, it'd be hard to like leave that, right? So what was kind of the thought behind going to Colorado? I didn't think it was going to be a career path. I thought marine bio could solely be a hobby. And that was my own limited belief system. So I thought that marine bio, I couldn't make a career out of it. It wasn't possible. And it truly was. I remember having one conversation when I was younger and someone pretty much turned me off from marine bio. They were like, you're never going to make money in this field. And so from that, even people that love you and care for you, if they don't know firsthand, it was a random person on a plane I sat next to. Do not let random people 
convince you to not follow your path. Okay. Because I did that. Don't let it happen. I don't even remember what this guy's face looks like, but I remember the conversation. I remember when he said it and I was like, well, guess I'm not doing that. So I was starting to apply to engineering schools. In my head, my thought process was, I want to make a change. I don't know if it's more in the policy route where I want to implement change or if in the engineering route, I want to fabricate change. That's why I went into engineering. So I ended up getting an environmental engineering degree with a minor in policy. And so that essentially taught me how to problem solve. So my husband's an engineer. And so biology, like going to school for biology, it was a ton of memorization. And you do learn like some systems and overall general concepts. But like engineering, the way that you're trained and like your schooling works, it really does teach you problem solving and how to be strategic. And I think that engineering brain is so amazing and applicable in so many different settings. So I think it's amazing. Absolutely. So I don't regret getting it because I think it it gave me a very technical foundation. But, you know, ironically, I was out in Colorado. I went to CU Boulder. I was in Colorado for one month before I was like, wait, I miss the ocean so much. And I need to do something about this. It wasn't until I left that I realized how important it was to me. So I actually got involved out in Colorado. I found this nonprofit at the time called the Colorado Ocean Coalition, which is all about building land to sea stewardship for people in landlocked states to really teach them that the actions they're doing inland still all trickles downstream. And the pollutants, the the microplastics, all of that, all watersheds are connected. And so we were all about kind of broadcasting that knowledge and doing a lot of policy too. So we'd go, we'd lobby at Congress and just for taking out plastic straws and restaurants and pushing these policies. And so I got involved with that. And then I ended up starting the first college chapter of that nonprofit at my school. It grew to become like, now it's still the largest environmental organization on that campus. That's awesome. Yeah. And so there's ways to do that. Like there's still ways to be a marine bio person in a landlocked state. I got to find out. That connection with the ocean, no matter if you're in the middle of Colorado, which listeners in other countries, if you're not familiar, Colorado is like pretty much dead smack in the middle of the United States. It is not anywhere near the ocean. But even when you're there you're still connected to the ocean. And I really like that you kept that alive. I'm really happy I got involved in that organization. It was a huge growth for me. And it made me realize that this still really matters. And so I ended up going those four years in college. And then when I had graduated, and I graduated in the middle of COVID, which was horrific, but I knew when I had graduated, I was like, okay, I'm not fully ready to step into this consulting role. I really want to get back to my roots. And that's kind of what I kept saying to myself was that I wanted to like get back to my roots, rediscover my why. And my why has always been corals. It always has been. And so I joined the Coral Restoration Foundation as an intern for a few months. And I started diving all the time and became a scientific diver through that organization and was outplanting mature fragments of acroporas, which are the staghorn or the elkhorn corals, the branching corals, and got into the restoration world right after college. And I've never turned back. Coral Restoration Foundation. So for listeners, they're located in Key Largo still, right? Their initial founder was like the pioneer, right? Like he kind of figured it out and everybody else followed suit and like followed a lot of his methods, but he figured out how to actually grow and transplant coral. So like to be part of that and like they do some amazing work and they've outplanted so many different reefs and it's grown since. It's really blown up in the last few years too. 
There's been a lot of media attention on coral restoration as of late, which is so cool because now nonprofits like Coral Restoration Foundation are gaining a lot more attention and funding. So that's always great news for corals. I was involved in that world and then uh, left that. And I was in Belize for a little bit of time getting my dive master's. Okay, so did you go down there specifically to just be like, I want this certification, but I want to get certified somewhere other than where I've been diving? Yeah, I wanted to bop around. I was supposed to go to Tahiti actually first. That was my original plan. And then a week before I was supposed to leave, the country went into lockdown because we were still kind of in that COVID area. And I pretty much closed my eyes and pointed to a random part on the map. I chose Placencia, Belize. I got my dive masters out there and it was, it was epic. It was a great time. Yeah. I mean, Belize still has some incredible diving as well. Yeah. There's a lot of restoration happening out there. There's a nonprofit called Fragments of Hope where I think they're based in Laughing Bird Key and they're like a real good example of a successful restoration project. They've really been able to restore that area to almost 100% coral cover. So it is a fascinating and incredible place if you ever have the opportunity to go there. Yeah, I have to put that on my list. Yeah, put it to your list. And then I left Belize and I was ready to get back into my field or get into a career. You know, I was ready to like get serious, quote unquote. And so I had taken on, I was about to take on a job working in Southern California. So away from the reefs entirely, I was going to do more of like climate risk and mitigation. This is more in like your engineering realm. Is- that was more in my engineering role. Like I was still in the headspace where I was like, okay, like I had my time, you know, I got like the coral bug out of my system. Now I'm ready to get serious. And so I was about to start this job in Southern California, of course, away from reefs. And that same week I signed an offer. I got this, just this serendipitous email in my inbox that pretty much rerouted everything for me. So your email wasn't just like to you, it was to like a whole bunch of people, right? Like, hey, I'm leaving my role. I'm going to go to Saudi Arabia. Holy cow. And then your response was just like, congrats have fun. And then it got real. So you can tell that story. Holy cow. Yep. So my mentor for a long, long time, he was the director of the coral restoration program at NOAA for nearly 25 years. He sent out this mass email to his colleagues being like, Hey guys, I'm taking a sabbatical from NOAA for six months. There's this massive opportunity happening in the Red Sea. So All of a sudden, there's all this funding being funneled into this region to restore and to enhance the reefs here. And for him, he was like, I am finding this as like an amazing professional opportunity for me and an amazing opportunity for the world of corals to see how can we commercialize coral restoration? How can we scale this up? What can happen when we have real funding and restoration? It was just like this massive opportunity. So he had sent out this email. I pretty much sent an email back being like, congrats, best of luck on your endeavors. That sounds awesome. Was unassuming that anything would happen from that point. And then I received an email directly from him in my inbox. And he was like, hey, Brooke, I'm impressed with your work that you've been doing. I was with the Coral Restoration Consortium at the time as a volunteer. I was on the engineering and innovation working group, helping to bring together various stakeholders to talk about engineering and restoration to kind of bridge that conversation. And He was like, look, I'm impressed with the work you do with your organizational skills. I 
don't know where you're at in your career right now. Mind you, I had just signed an offer to go somewhere else. He was like, I don't know where you're at in your career, but if you want to have a discussion about the work I'm about to take on in the Red Sea, I'd love to talk to you and get on a Zoom call. And so in my head, I was like, okay, that's harmless. I could just talk to him on a Zoom call, see what this is all about. Pretty much got in this conversation with him and immediately had chills up and down my spine. It was like, it was such a universal pull to be like, I don't care what you had already like accepted, but like, this is rerouting you and this is what you need to do. And this project is wild. Please explain the project because I have spent time going down the rabbit hole and I'm like, Brooke still is going to have to explain this to me. It's crazy. So I'm going to try to go back to like the roots of it. Yes. And of course, like I want to definitely disclaimer, I am not an expert on Saudi politics, on Red Sea restoration, but I'm starting to learn a little bit. So what's happening in Saudi Arabia is that there's been this massive revolution that's been happening in the last few years where they're wanting to diversify their economy away from oil and petroleum. They're recognizing it's a finite resource and they want to find ways to still uplift and augment their economy. And so they're now kind of bringing in all these other sectors to the conversation. They want to bring in entertainment to the region, which has never happened, sports, high-end luxury, and then utilizing their natural resources with ecotourism. And so there's this region in the north portion of the Red Sea in Saudi Arabia. It touches like Egypt and Jordan that will be known as Neom. And Neom is going to become this semi-autonomous region that will become the next big city, super sustainable city, forward thinking. And there is this unassuming island about 12 miles off the coast of the mainland that is known as Shusha Island. And this island hosts a mix of habitat and it's this absolutely gorgeous ancient reef system. But there are areas with 100% coral cover and then there are degraded areas where there's only you know semi-continuous hard bottom and rubble substrate. And so it's been interesting to see this mix out there. There's really healthy corals, but then there's lots of algal mats that you know, have come out of nowhere. And so it's become this really interesting case study for us to see what's going on there. So Anyways, this is an island that the crown prince frequented a lot, and he has chosen that island, selected this site to become the next and the best coral enhancement project. And so an enhancement project is a little different than a restoration project. So he doesn't just want to restore areas with natural substrate, but he also wants to augment the areas that don't have structure and don't have substrate with artificial structures. And so that's kind of where we come in. So this semi-autonomous region, Neom, has joined in collaboration with KAUST, which is known as King Abdullah University of Science Technology. They're based near Jeddah in the Red Sea, and they are a science and technology university for master's, PhD, and postdocs. And so they have joined in collaboration for Shusha Island to uplift in-kingdom research and development technologies. And so I came in on the KAUST team to start looking at this reefscape and seeing how we can augment this area. And so the way that we are planning on doing this, and I can finally talk about it because it's debuted, you can look it up. It's called KAUST Reefscape Restoration Initiative. and 
Their plan is to build a 23,000 square meter land-based facility. This will be a nursery that is growing and propagating around 400,000 corals a year. Lots of corals, lots of different genotypes, and they'll also be using those in kingdom technologies. So we're going to be looking at probiotics and climate resilience and thermal treadmills and how we can breed these resilient species that are not only resilient to thermal changes, but also to acidity and pollution and disease outbreak. And so there's going to be this land-based component of it. And then while we're building up this facility, we want to start propagating corals in situ. So in situ means pretty much in the ocean, you know, where it was originally derived. So we're going to have this in situ nursery. We're still kind of researching if it will be coral trees, which are technically just PVC pipes and epoxy and zip ties the rudimentary restoration where we can never forget our roots or, you know, they might be tables or ropes. We're still in the process of investigating what will be best to to be able to propagate around 100,000 corals in that environment. And so we'll be looking at an in-situ nursery as well. And then once we have these corals, we need a place to put them. So as you guys may already know, corals need substrate to settle and to feel comfortable. Like humans, they need structure. And so if there's not already natural substrate and natural structure available, we want to create that structure for them so we can promote sexual recruits and so we can have these grown fragments to to place them on. So that's what we're doing. We're in the process right now of spatially planning this reefscape. It is a 100 hectare reefscape, which is huge. It's a huge area. And so We've divided it into these operational units known as cells, where we're working in these individual cells to kind of make a plan of how we're going to augment these certain areas. So if we'll just be doing natural enhancement or natural restoration, or if we'll be also doing artificial enhancement. And so we've kind of made case-by-case basis on these cells on how we're going to be augmenting this rate. That's my big general summary of that. So let me know if I need to recircle back to any of what I just said. So my questions are, is the reef facility this like huge, what did you say, 23,000? Square meter. Meter, holy bananas, even bigger. Facility, is this going in Neom or is this going on Shusha Island? So it's going to go on a different region. It's still, so Neom owns Shusha Island, but it's going to be at this region called Hada Beach, which is very close to Shusha. And it just has good water quality in that region. And so that's why we chose that area because we'll have, you know, an intake pipe to be able to feed these LSS systems. So it'll be on Hada Beach, but still within Neom. Like this is all under like Neom's umbrella, but it's going to be a KAUST project. I want to dive way more into like your role there and really what you've been doing for the last six months. But I'm really curious about your personal journey because it's not like the United States is particularly close to Saudi Arabia, geographically or culturally. What was it like going over there for a job? It's not like you're going to visit for a weekend. Like you're going to live there. I'm going to be totally candid. It felt like I crash landed on planet Mars with intense vertigo. I still sometimes feel that way. Where I get to live is, is in Kaust. And Kaust is this huge research university that also has early childhood centers and a high school and all these different neighborhoods. And it's got 
tennis courts and gyms and pools and it's right on the Red Sea. And so it's like this whole community there. I'm not only, you know, working with Saudis and living with Saudis. There are 115 different nationalities, all sorts of people from different walks of life that somehow end up here. And there's about 7,000 residents on this compound. And so it's this wild place where I now have friends and colleagues from all over the world. Other than the people on my team, I hadn't met another American until May. And I was there since January. So it was like month five I had been there before I met another American girl around my age. And so also I'm going into this project pretty young. I'm in my mid-20s, just a few years out of college. And so I am working with, you know, mostly people that are postdocs and PhD students or they're established professionals. And so, yeah, even just working with the age gap and the culture difference, it's been a massive growth opportunity for me, both professionally and personally. It's been crazy. (laughs) What were one or two of the things that you really had to kind of overcome while you were over there? I'd say the biggest one was that I was nearly 10,000 miles away from my friends and family and about a 10 hour time change. So I never realized before that I've definitely always been a homebody. And so kind of dealing with that, you know, the homesickness, the isolation that I had to endure, but that was a huge growth opportunity for me. And then second was like, I wasn't only starting this new world and learning about the bus routes and how to get groceries and how to travel on my own, but I was also starting a brand new job. And a lot of females, unfortunately, we come in with a lot of imposter syndrome of like, am I supposed to be here? Do I belong here? Is this right for me? And so dealing with that personal mental battle too, of convincing myself and proving to myself, not proving to anyone else, because that does not matter, but proving to yourself that you are supposed to be there and that your work is valuable and your mind is valuable and the things that you have to say and the things that you have to contribute matter. And so it was more of a mental struggle for me than it was ever physical. Of course, being dropped on planet Mars was pretty physical, but it was more of the mental challenge for me to prove my adaptability, to prove my resiliency. And it's been a massive coming of age. Especially in your early 20s, right? You're starting your career anyway. It's such a big time for you anyway. That's so exciting. Thank you. So Neom is not actually in existence yet. Is that correct? It is coming into existence. Okay. So that's why you live in Kaust and not in this new... Exactly. Yep. I live in Kaust mostly because I'm an employee of Kaust right now. So I live and work for the university. And Neom, I still have to get on a two-hour flight to get up to that region. And so once this project really gets going and gets its momentum, a lot of us will be moved out to Neom. And there already are people on our team that are out in Neom. So, you know, figuring out the operations and the the logistics to get us out to that island and to start collaborating and communicating. So we're all on the same page about this project. That's really, really cool. So over there, traditionally women dress very differently than they do in the United States. Do you have to follow a certain dress code while you're over there? Short answer, yes. But in 2019, a lot of changes happened to the country. So non-Muslim women no longer had to wear an abaya or a hijab. So a hijab is a covering of your hair and the abaya is the robe that women wear to cover their shoulders, their elbows, their knees. So that was no longer ordained, but it's still highly recommended to still respect the culture. Of course, there's a lot of different generations of people and tribes of people that live in this region. And so it's best to respect 
respect those people, but also to respect yourself and to wear something that you feel comfortable with. And so there still are a bit of those rules. So Technically, I try to abide by not showing my shoulders, my elbows, or my knees. It's also very hot in that country, and it's a desert. So when I had first gone to Saudi, I had come straight from Colorado. And so I had no idea how to dress. I was bringing like my winter coats because I was like, well, I have to cover my arms, but I don't have the clothes. I was dying, like full on. But you learn and you adapt. And what's great about the women in this country from what I've found from my own personal experiences is that they are very empowered in the ways that they dress and in what they choose to show and what they choose not to show. And that's been really cool too. Definitely a culture change. They do not dress like how we dress in Florida and something you've got to be okay with. But definitely in the last few years, there's been a lot of social progress in that country. And that's been really inspiring to see. Okay, you signed up and crash landed on Mars for a six month stint. What did you do during these six months on this groundbreaking, amazing reef project? Yeah, so when I first went in, I was definitely more of a high level person. So my boss brought me in knowing that I come from an engineering background, but I also have some restoration experience. I've got some admin experience and coordination experience. So he was like, I kind of want to put you on high level. I want you to make sure that all these different components of this project are communicating. So I was technically on the admin and operations side, working with the reefscape restoration team, the coral nursery team, and then the data management and monitoring team, just to make sure that those are all syncing and communicating. But the main role I had during that time was one, I hosted two workshops. So I hosted one, a coral nursery design workshop, and then I hosted a restoration workshop. So this was just welcoming in a bunch of different stakeholders. So restoration practitioners from all over the globe to come to Cal's and to advise us on how we run a project at this scale. And so the coral nursery project was we talked about the design of the building. We talked about the lighting. Was it going to be artificial lighting? Was it going to be natural lighting? How deep were the tanks going to be? What were the species we were going to put in these tanks? And how are we going to augment this with co-husbandry? Are we going to, you know, also be growing urchins and snails? And also, how are we going to be making sure it's adapting to a change in climate? Are we going to have these thermal treadmills to make sure we're choosing resilient species to put back on these reefs? Are we going to be helping these corals to be healthy with innovative technologies like probiotics and supporting the biome of the coral? And so there was all these different components that we talked about and we brought in. And then a few months later, once we kind of got the initial designs for this coral nursery, we brought in more of the restoration team to talk to us about, okay, we've got this 100 hectare reefscape, which is this huge area. How are we going to divide this area and spatially plan it almost like how you would spatially plan an urban city? How are we going to break them up into operational units and what are we going to be using to restore it? And what are the methods we're going to be using to enhance it? So those were my main projects I worked on during that time. And then I was also a scientific dive master on the team. And so I was going out to site at Shusha Island and spending a few weeks at a time diving three to five times a day and running benthic studies and characterizing the various habitat on the reef. And so I got to do a lot in those six months. I got to be a little bit admin and then I got to be a lot of field and it was a perfect balance for me. It's a cool job. I'm not going to lie. That's amazing. The tough job. Somebody's got to do it. Go and dive on some of the best coral. 
That's really cool. But I can imagine there's a lot behind the scenes, like coordinating all these workshops with people from all around the world. The scope and the size of the project that you're trying to do is really hard to grasp. I'm not going to lie. So how do you distill that information down and how do best practices for your project get decided? I'd say just like having a really good project manager or a few project managers on the team to establish Gantt charts and to turn this into different phases of the project. So we've got this initial trials phase where we're just kind of understanding what the reef looks like before anything happens. And then we've got these different phases where we're going to start slowly implementing a mooring plan if we're going to put buoys out. And then C2 Nursery is definitely going to come before the land-based nursery. And so let's start planning. Are we putting out trees? Are we putting out ropes? Are we putting out tables? And so it's definitely this phased approach that will overlap with each other over time. But I'd say taking it in digestible pieces is the best way to do it. And having a project manager to establish Gantt charts and to establish a process agenda of how we can meet these certain benchmarks is vital. It's exciting though. It's exciting to be a part of that project. Okay, so six months in and it wasn't your visa that was up, right? It was the end of the project. It was the end of my contract. Okay, so then what happened? I was on there for a six-month contract, and that was initially enough time I wanted to give. I was like, you know what? Six months in Saudi Arabia, I'm done. And so my contract had expired, my visa expired, and so I went back home. And I was back home in Colorado for a few weeks, and I split my residency between Colorado and Florida, which is awesome. And I was out there, and I had this realization that like I had so much more to gain from this project personally and professionally, and I had so much more to give of myself to this project. And so with that, I decided I'm going to go back for a little bit more time and kind of sort it out from there. I've taken on another contract and I'll be going back in two days. I'm heading back to Saudi Arabia. I'm really excited for this opportunity to do this again and maybe to do it even a little bit better this time. Maybe I won't feel like I crash landed on planet Mars and I'll be, you know, a little bit more prepared for what's to come, both in the workplace, but also in a social setting for me and to really take this on. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity for me. And then after that, who knows? I'm just kind of following the current. I feel very much like I am a propagule out to sea. Like I am just a little mangrove slapling following the current. And eventually I will find some hard ground to settle on. And I don't know when that's going to happen. But so far, I've been enjoying the wave. It's perfect. You got to enjoy the ride, right? Absolutely. That's so cool. And you signed up for a year. You're like six months. I did it. I'll do a year. So I'm really curious to see, you know, how much growth you see in the project and in yourself in a year. Oh, it's going to be massive. And I have a personal website. So I'm planning on blogging a lot more of what's happening in the project, especially now that the project has been published. So now I can finally openly talk about it. There's a website where you can read up on it. And so yeah, I'm going to be a lot more vocal and candid about my experiences with this job. It's an amazing opportunity. And what I find really exciting about this project is the opportunity to commercialize restoration and to scale it and the opportunity we can do with reefs once it's funded. And we should never lose sight of our roots with coral restoration. It is grassroots organizations and indigenous communities that first started restoring corals and realizing how vital they are to protect coastlines and to provide 
homes and shelters for 25% of marine organisms and also to provide food and a basis and a business for coastal communities. And so corals are essential and I never want to lose sight of those roots when these big giga projects come on site, you know, because we wouldn't be there without the first people that spearheaded this very important movement. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of brings up a little bit of a different point that I wanted to talk to you about. You've worked in the nonprofit realm and this very large for-profit realm. What are some of the differences that you're seeing? They're both doing wonderful things, right? They both have these altruistic goals in mind. The main thing I've noticed other than the change in funding is just the change of scale. So a lot of the nonprofit restoration world started off with PVC pipes and zip ties. And that's why as an engineer, I love being in the restoration world because I get to look at how we can scale this up, how we can up-level it, and how we can automate restoration. Restoration is a laborious field and you need a lot of divers and a lot of hands on deck to get a lot of coral fragments out on the reef. And that's only asexual propagation. You know, there's this whole other realm of sexual propagation and a lot of important organizations that are doing that work too. And so I would just say the level of scale. We can only as a nonprofit really start restoring at one hectare at a time. To change from one hectare to 100 hectares is massive, but it's so needed because a one hectare restored reef is not going to restore the whole ecosystem function. So I just see this massive opportunity to really make a change. And we couldn't have done that, again, without our nonprofit counterparts. That's very true. So for listeners, I did look up one hectare is equivalent to like 2.1 acres. Yeah, 100 hectares is like almost 250 acres. Yeah, it's huge. It's such a huge project. It's so cool. You make a really good point of a couple of acres is like a drop in the bucket when you look at a reef that's huge, hundreds of miles long. Again, it's more than coral restoration too. It's what needs to be done, right? So we know that we have lost about two thirds of the world's coral reefs due to human activity. And the remaining 70 to 90% of all global coral reefs may disappear in the next 10 to 15 years. We would lose the functionality of an entire ecosystem that supports millions of species and millions of people, and it may all be lost at the hands of humans. And so we are not just restoring a coral. We are not just restoring a reef. We are restoring a whole ecosystem. We need seagrasses to sequester carbon, and we need mangroves to hold down the roots and to protect coasts. So there's a lot at play here. It's ocean dynamics that we're working with. And so that's what I find exciting about this is that there's now this massive change to be like, we've got a lot more work to do and we are far from being done. The work that's happening in the Red Sea is phenomenal, but in the Caribbean and Florida, we've got Mission Iconic Reefs that is getting off the ground now. And so we've got a lot of big projects that are happening. And there's also, you know, private funded projects. So there's now a project coming out that University of Miami as well the University of Hawaii and a few other institutions are working on with the DARPA project. And that is to start deploying these hybrid structures, these green gray infrastructures to support the growth of calcareous organisms and to attenuate wave energy. And we've finally got stakeholders and managers realizing the importance of coral reefs to protect our coasts, right? It was so ironic that Hurricane Ian just, I mean, it was not ironic. It was absolutely tragic that Hurricane Ian came through Florida and decimated a lot of marginalized communities and susceptible communities. And the onset of natural disasters 
is going to get more and more severe if we don't solve the top-down issue of climate change. And that's what we need to fix, you know, because as much as restoration is amazing and the work we're doing is so important, the way I look at it is that like we are plugging up a leak in a huge tank. And until we figure out what to do with how we can store carbon and how we can really start reversing the damage being done, we're really just slowing it down right now with restoration. We're not fixing the issue. That's a lot of it, right? I think another way like of looking at this, because restoration for people is really unattainable. Like if you live in Colorado, you're not going to get hands-on coral restoration. Like maybe you have a couple of dollars you can give to an organization to help them further their mission. But for them in their everyday life, like that's really hard to conceptualize. So for more of a hands-on approach for people that live not in a coral restoration world, it could be, you know, what can I do? Right. What can you do every day to be more connected with your nature, your natural surroundings? Because nature is all connected and we're a part of it. And climate change as a whole, you can't even think about it. Right. It's just such a huge topic. You can't even climate scientists don't totally agree on all the different models. Right. It's just such a massive project that people want to not even project. It's just such a massive concept that people can't even and don't even want to necessarily wrap their minds around it. Right, because it's a lot of doom and gloom, and you kind of throw your hands up, and you're like, "Whatever, it's happening, or it's happening, and we must do something." And people get really bent out of shape, and that's not the best way to go about it either, right? So, what can I control? One of the best examples, and this isn't necessarily—I mean, it's all tied together. Everything's tied together, but like plastics, we talk about. You know, there's a lot of restoration. I feel like is kind of the equivalent of pulling plastics out of the ocean, like doing beach cleanup. You know, there's that ocean cleanup project, which is kind of controversial. It is controversial. The bathtub's overflowing and you're just trying to bail it out, right? Versus turning off the faucet. So stopping using the plastics instead of trying to clean them up or what can I control in my day-to-day life that is good or not for the environment that I'm in, right? And kind of going from there. How can you be more in tune with what's going on in the world around? So yeah, no, that's a really good point. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, unless we stop the point source pollution, it's true. It's just, it's an overflowing bathtub. But like, I do not want the listeners of this podcast to feel like it's doom and gloom. There is still so much that you can do, even if you're not on the coast. Coming from Colorado, I got to realize the interconnectedness of our land and our sea, that even protecting watersheds is just as important because everything trickles downstream and eventually leads to the ocean. And our ocean is this huge, huge climate sink, yet it's being left out of climate policy. And even though that natural disasters are becoming more and more frequent, the US still has not declared a climate emergency. So something you mentioned was climate policy, and you went to the Capitol Hill Ocean Week. So I was really curious what your perception of that was and kind of what you took away from that. Because that's, I mean, DC is where all the policy happens, right? Yep. So that was a few years ago now. It was back in 2018. I got to go to Chow and I got to represent the Inland Ocean Coalition with the executive director. It was a fabulous opportunity for me. And what I realized is that a lot of policymakers want to learn and want to know what's going on. Of course, it it depends on who you're talking to. But if you're talking to the right people, they want to be educated. And what I see the biggest issue in policy right now is that there is very little science communication in policy. And there needs to be more scientists and more engineers as policymakers, or else this isn't going to happen. And it's also important that like, again, having a personal relationship to this, witnessing the degradation firsthand and finding an issue that you are so, so passionate about, even if it's saving sea turtles out of drains, whatever it is, 
having an issue that you are so passionate about and that you want to gun host spearhead the movement. It's important no matter what it is, whether it's corals or if it's plastic or if it's meat consumption. So I'd say when I was there at Chow, I felt pretty inspired. I was able to talk to state representatives that wanted to fix the plastic pollution issue. So with my nonprofit, I got to have a bunch of different restaurants sign a pledge about eliminating their plastic straw usage, which, you know, this was during the time of the whole plastic straw in a sea turtle's nose era. So we got to make changes. So don't doubt that you can't make a change because you don't have a seat on the Senate. You still absolutely can. And to vote for what you believe and for who you believe is going to make the difference. So definitely don't lose hope in this mission. We've got a lot of work to do, but we've also come a a long way. Something else I wanted to bring up, definitely had like a nonlinear route, right? So you went from marine bio to engineering to back to marine bio with like a tentative, actually going to take an engineering route. But you've also had like a pay the bills jobs while you're following the dream. And I think that's really important because listeners for some reason think that and not just listeners, I'm not trying to target y'all, but people in general think that, oh, it's just I'll go to school, I'll get a job and life is candy after that, right? But it's not usually how it works out. Got to have some dips and valleys and some learning curves with it. And that's how you get to be where you are right now, right? And all these things that you learn. So we chat a little bit about some of like the pay the bills jobs that you had and like how you kind of kept sight of what you really wanted, even though you're making money at other things. Absolutely. And those pay the bill jobs got me to have my passion project jobs as well. And unfortunately, right now, a lot of the work being done in marine bio is nonprofit and government. And so you're not getting these awesome salaries. If you even are getting a salary, a lot of people are still hourly workers in this field. When I was working as a restoration diver initially, I was also working as a cocktail server. So I would be still in my dive gear, fully in a wet bathing suit, driving to my next job and then changing in the parking lot before going on another six hour shift. And so it has not always been peachy, but luckily now, I mean, I've come from a place of having two jobs and working in the service industry too, to now being able to have a salary job in this field. And so it is possible, but Again, it might not be an easy route. If it is, that's awesome. But if it isn't, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope if you're not making you know, the salary you wanted at the time because there are other ways to supplement it too. That's a good point. Starting out in a lot of different careers and fields, right? You're just going to make less. It's just the nature of the game. And then as you progress, you make more. More experience, more knowledge, you make more. So if you have to supplement in the early days... Just kind of the nature of the game a little bit. Exactly. It's a rite of passage, really. None of my career journey so far has been linear or conventional by any means. And I don't think I want to have it any other way. But just don't make my mistake of feeling like you can't be a marine biologist because you're not going to make enough money or whatever field you want to be in. Like follow your passions. Life is short. Do what you want to do. And eventually, like you said, the money will come because you will have those experiences. And most importantly, you will have the passion. Absolutely. All right. At the end of each episode, I have a series of questions that I like to ask. You ready? I'm ready. Bring it on. All right. What is your favorite sea creature and why? So my favorite animals are obviously corals. So we know that corals are animals and That might be a hard concept to fully understand for some people. And so the best way I like to relate corals being animals is to humans. So like humans, corals need structure. So they need a specific place to settle. And then like us, corals need sunlight. So they need to be able to have those symbiotic algaes to photosynthesize and to provide them nourishment and nutrition. And they also need community members. So they need 
their algae as roommates and all those other counterparts to make them happy and fulfilled and have that social aspect too. And then lastly, and the most important is that they have this unique and ancient partnership known as symbiosis. And so they need partners. So that's why In my opinion, corals are animals because they need structure to settle and to feel stable. They need sunlight, they need food, and they need other people to depend on. So that's why corals are my favorite. They're just like this. And they're beautiful. And they're beautiful. And they attract beautiful creatures. It's wonderful. What does the ocean mean to you? The ocean has always been a symbol of divine interconnection for me. When I'm in the ocean, it's one of the only places where I truly feel this overwhelming sense of calm and peace. And it's a place where I'm constantly humbled and equally amazed. I'm humbled by how small I am and how I am just a speck of sand in this wild, wild world and universe we get to reside in. But I'm also constantly amazed by the magic I've experienced while being submerged in the underwater world. And so for that, I love the ocean. It's the constant reminder of our interconnection and yeah, the delicate interbalances of all of it. Great answer. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects, up to three, what would you use the money for? So if it wasn't in Saudi Arabia and the Red Sea? Yeah, I was going to say, because I feel like you kind of have a blank check in Saudi Arabia right now. But for the people that don't, I would love to uplift indigenous voices and grassroots organizations that have started this work and spearheaded this movement. And so I would want to provide them more funding so they can scale up their work. One of the countries that really started this movement was Indonesia, and they are struggling for funding right now, and I would love to help them. But also another thing that I would love to invest money in is the long-term management and monitoring of structures out at sea. So once you you know deploy a structure whether it's for a nursery to grow corals or if it's you know a spider web to outplant corals on and to propagate corals there needs to be maintenance on those structures you can't just throw them out there and just hope that they're going to do fine so there needs to be ongoing monitoring and management of those structures and then also i would want to put more money into education and outreach and to professional growth so for restoration practitioners to have frequent seminars and to be able to engage with various different stakeholders. What I love so much about the coral world is how interdisciplinary it is. And so although this podcast is how to be a marine biologist, you can be an engineer, you can be a policymaker, you can be a communicator, an artist, and still make a difference in this field and still have an important message to share. And so, yeah, I would say just being able to uplift all of those voices, to uplift marginalized communities as well, and to have ongoing monitoring and management of the structures that have already been deployed. Great use. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day out in the field, just, you know, wonderful playing on the reef or it could be a day where like things happened and it makes a really great story now okay I have got three great stories and they're all so positive and so amazing and they all happened in one week oh wow what an epic week yep it was my last week at CRF so the Coral Restoration Foundation I was out there for one more week I feel like the universe was just throwing out all these amazing things to be like stay 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 so I was on this one project with two other colleagues we were out on the bay and we were doing this coral exchange with FWC and Moat and NOAA 
where we were using these little boulder domes to outplant various little like orbicellas onto. And I remember it being a very murky day. My head was in one of these boulders and I wasn't focused on anything else going around me. And all of a sudden my colleague tugged on my fin to be like, you need to look at this. You need to see what's going on. And I look up and I see this massive silhouette just a few feet away from me. I was like, I am not ready to have like a head on with a massive shark right now. And these organisms started coming closer to me and I was able to get a clearer look and it was a pod of dolphins. It was spectacular. I remember me and my two other colleagues just like staring in amazement. I had tears well up in my mask. I was just like, this is the most magical thing I've ever witnessed. And the dolphins were so intrigued by us and so curious by us. And they were just checking us out. There were about six of them and it was magical. And in the same week, I was in the Tavernier Nursery with CRF. It's about seven miles offshore. And I was just doing regular monitoring on the coral fragments. So, you know, I was looking at predation. I was looking at disease. I was just checking up on the corals. And all of a sudden, two manatees swim through our nursery. And again, seven miles offshore, I have never personally seen manatees that far offshore. So that was another thing that was so unbelievable to me. And lastly, same week, I was on a night dive with CRF, but I was also with some UM graduate students as well. I was with now Dr. Liv Williamson, and we were doing a spawning dive. We were hoping to see some coral spawn. It was night one of spawning, and so we were hoping to see the spawning of Diploria labyrinthius, which has never been documented in the wild ever, 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 ever. So we were in the water for our first dive, just kind of laying out transects and starting to kind of tag these different corals that we hope might spawn. And so that was our first dive. We get back on the boat. We're just doing our surface interval. And one of the divers is out in the water already. And she screams out, they're spawning. And so we all like gear up really quick and jump in and For the first time ever in my life, I got to witness the spawning of D-Lab. First of all, it made history. It was never documented in the wild ever. And to be with some amazing pioneers in coral restoration and sexual reproduction of coral, it was so magnificent to see. So yeah, it changed my life. And luckily enough, I got to see some spawning again this year. And I got to see spawning of some acroporids in the Red Sea. So it's epic. If you ever get the chance to see coral spawn, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. For you, it's a two or three times in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah, it was such an incredible opportunity for me. That is awesome. I still haven't seen it. Still on my list. Very cool. Yeah, you need to. Okay. At the end of each episode, I'd like to leave the audience with a conservation asked to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? I would say, first and foremost, if you feel like your journey hasn't been linear thus far and you're not where you're supposed to be, trust in the divine timing of your life. Trust that things will work out and do not lose sight of that. Do not lose sight of that mission and that passion that you have. There's a reason you have it. And there's a reason you have a voice that can shout it to the masses. So one, don't lose your passion. Two, keep educating yourself. Just because you're out of college does not mean that knowledge stops. The quest to learn more stops. Keep learning, whether it's, you know, listening to podcasts or if it's, you know, picking up a book on on whatever you're interested in. Stay educated. And three, policy change. Policy change is the main way we could really make some massive changes. I would say those are the three things. Awesome. Well, Brooklyn, if listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your work, where's the best place to do so? 
Yes. So I've got a personal website. It's brooklynelswag.com. Maybe you can put it in the show notes or something because it's a big name. But that's my personal website. That's a little bit about me and my blog. And you can find a way to connect with me. I also have an Instagram, my personal Instagram. It's brooklyn underscore ELZ. And that's where I'm probably on the most. That's where I'll be posting more of my day-to-day life in the field or in the office or solo travel or wherever I may be. So I would say that those are the two main ways to reach me and track me down. Perfect. Well, I'll put a link to that and everything else we chatted about in the show notes today. Brooklyn, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really enjoyed our chat. Oh, Kara, it was awesome. I'm so glad I got to be here. Thank you so much. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.